We are in a section of the Gospel of Matthew commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. We are in chapter 5, and so far in chapter 5, we've seen Jesus uh, go from describing what the kingdom citizen is like to the kind of influence that the kingdom citizen will have to talking about the Old Testament law handed down by Moses and talking about uh, the righteous requirements to be in the kingdom of heaven. Many people in the crowd would have had some questions for Jesus. Like, well, what does he say about the law of Moses? What does he say about the scriptures that we were handed, that was handed down from generation to generation? What does he say about the law and the prophets? And the reason they would be concerned about that is because in Deuteronomy chapter 13, God says through Moses, if a prophet among you does a sign or a wonder, examine them. Make sure that they're not leading you away from God. Even if that sign or wonder comes to pass, make sure they're not leading you away because the Lord, your God, is the one we should worship. So they would have had some questions for Jesus because people could already sense some tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus isn't exactly the friend of the religious elite. He was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So there would be some questions in their minds as to what he would say about the law of Moses. But understand, by this time in Israel's history, the religious leaders had taken the law and reduced it to a bunch of external do's and don'ts. Like, if outwardly I don't do this, and I don't do this, but I do this, and I do this, then I'm okay with God. Well, the Pharisees said that righteousness consisted of performing certain actions But God has always been concerned with the attitudes of the heart. So Jesus brings up six common issues, and he talks about God's heart on those matters. And verses 17 through 20 really set the scene for the rest of the chapter. In verse 17, it says, Jesus talking says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill He's saying, I'm the subject of the law. I am the fulfillment of the law. I'm the one it predicted. The law is fulfilled in me. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about keeping the law. And those listening to Jesus are thinking, well, that's right. Yeah, that's what we do. But again, they're thinking externally. Well, I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I've done this. I'm okay. But Jesus now sets the standard for them, and this really sets up the rest of the chapter. In verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were thought to be the standard for righteousness. That, that's, uh, they were what the Jewish people aspired to when it came to spirituality. So if they don't meet God's, God's standard, who does? And that is his point. The whole point of the law, it was not that we go through the law and just do check, check, check of all the things we do and all the things that we don't do. And the point of the law is to look at it and say, well, I don't do that. I, I miss it here. I fall short here. How can I be saved? And God says, it's only by me, by my grace and my mercy. No one is righteous, no, not one. You cannot achieve righteousness. You can only accept it by faith in Jesus Christ. 
But Jesus still knows that there are people sitting there still thinking, oh, well, I'm still doing pretty good. They can hold out this external religious facade. So what he does in the rest of chapter 5 is give a series of six comparative statements. You have heard it said this way, but I say to you this. Six comparisons, six times going through the things people have heard, things that were passed along to them, versus what Jesus declares as being the truth. And all that we read from verses 21 through the end of the chapter are illustrations of verse 20. We have six illustrations. Now, we covered the first two last week. We looked at what Jesus said about murder and adultery, the sixth and seventh commandment. And in both illustrations, Jesus strikes at the heart of the matter, saying that obeying God's law, obeying God's word, is not just a matter of outward actions, but it's a matter of internal attitudes. Murder begins in the heart. And we looked at anger. And adultery begins in the heart. And he talked about lust. Sin always begins in the heart. The heart is the soil for the seed of sin to germinate and to grow. So Jesus continues to get to the matter of the heart in verses 31 through 48, giving four more comparative uh, illustrations that point back to the principle of verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Because it's not just about the outward action, it's about the inward attitude. And these next four, I see these actually as extensions of the first two. I'll explain that as we go along. Well, first, we're going to look at divorce. Verse 31. So he just talked about adultery, adultery of the heart. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now understand that God's intent for marriage has always been for one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's always been his intent. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, the Mosaic law does permit for divorce. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus tells us why. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. God allows for divorce. It was not his intent but he allowed it because of the hardness of heart, because of the proliferation of our sin. And there were some conditions where a divorce was allowable, and he touches on one here. There, Look at verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus is drawing our attention to the perpetuation of sin. And if you go back to verse 27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So a lot of them were thinking, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus said, well, first of all, if you have looked longingly at a woman and lusted for her in your heart, and she's not your wife, well, then you've already committed adultery in thought form. Adultery in your heart. That's number one. That's what we talked about last week. Number two, if you divorce your wife for any reason except for sexual immorality, you are perpetuating adultery all over the place. Scripture allows for divorce if there is, as it says here, sexual immorality. The Greek word porneia, it's a broad term for any kind of illicit sexual intercourse. But because these men 
that he's talking to in, in these times, they were divor- divorcing their wives in a no-fault divorce. They would say, well, we're mutually incompatible. I'll talk about that in a minute. But in, according to the way the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24 talks about, well, different rabbis interpreted that differently, and they came out with all of these different meanings of when it was allowable to divorce your wife. And so these guys, they were just dumping their wives and getting new wives. And Jesus says, you don't understand. You are spreading adultery all over the land. An illegitimate divorce gives place to adultery because God does not recognize the divorce. And he sees the new relationship as being bigamous. Understand, it is possible for for a person to have a divorce that is recognized by the state, but not recognized by God. So if that person goes on to marry someone else, God considers that new relationship adultery because God sees them as still married to the original marriage partner. And what had happened at the time of Christ is the same thing that happens today. People divorcing one another for any and every reason. And one of the most ridiculous ones is irreconcilable differences. I mean, men and women, we're different We all have irreconcilable differences. We're all different. Husbands and wives are different. No matter how much you have in common or how much you think you're compatible, there are differences of opinion. There are differences in approaches to the way we do things. Uh, It's been said, and I don't know who originally said this, but if two people think alike on everything, at least one of them is not thinking. There are going to be things we just don't agree on. Or especially how we go about doing things. Uh, one of the classic ones, my wife and I, uh, the other, this earlier, I think it was earlier this week, she was, we were in the house, she's looking at the walls, and she's talking about, we need to paint the walls. And I'm looking at the walls thinking, well, there's paint on the walls. I mean, there's no, it's not chipping off. It looks fine to me. Why would we need to paint? Why would we need to do that? But She's seeing the artistic differences and all of these things, and I'm thinking, why, why do something we don't need to do? And we've learned to manage that over the years. Uh, I usually just leave the house, and she paints, <laughs> paints the walls, and I come back and say, oh, that's awesome. That looks great. Uh, you know, I looked up the weirdest reasons people have filed for divorce. And I'm I'm not going to give you all the ones they listed, but here's some of the highlights. Weirdest reasons people have filed for divorce. One, the bride looked different after the wedding. Let me explain. A Chinese man filed for divorce because he discovered that his wife had more than $100,000 worth of plastic surgery. The secret was discovered after the couple had children together, and the man noticed that their children had no resemblance to, to their mother. While that might seem like an extreme reaction, what is perhaps even more surprising is the husband had not noticed the extent of her plastic surgery in the first place, that it just got to that point. Here's one, uh, pet disputes. An Israeli man endured his, or I'm sorry, he ended his marriage because of irreconcilable differences as a result of the 550 cats rescued by his wife. Yes, I said 550 According to the Times of Israel, the husband claimed that he couldn't sleep in his bed because it was covered in cats, and he couldn't eat his meals because cats occupied his table and stole all his food. 
Now, reading this one, it just reminded me, because I do premarital counseling at times with couples who are going to get married, and during premarital counseling, yeah, at some point you talk about expectations about children, like, well, how many kids do you think we're going to have, and and are we on the same general ballpark of idea of how many kids we want to have, but nobody talks about pets, And, and this is a key could be a key problem. I mean, 550. Thankfully, my, my wife and I are on the same page when it comes to cats. Well, how about household chores? You know, I mean, anybody who's been with anybody, just roommates, there's disagreement about household chores, and it's common between couples. But how about being too clean? A German woman ended her marriage of 15 years because her husband cleaned constantly. She reached her limit when her husband knocked down a wall in their home because it was dirty. So I guess other issues probably behind that. But marriage is called holy matrimony. Marriage is sacred. Why Why do we call it holy matrimony? Why why do we consider it sacred? Because in Ephesians chapter 5, God likens the marriage union to his relationship with his bride, the church. Marriage is to be an example. It's a representation on earth of Christ's love for his bride, the church. That's why we're told in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And so listen, even if you have biblical grounds for divorce, do you realize the Bible never commands divorce? Divorce. It's never commanded. It doesn't say, well, in that case, you you have to. You have to divorce. He doesn't say that. It is a concession. Marriage is something we need to work out. It's something we have to continually work on. And you could read the book of Hosea to see God's heart on this whole matter. The reality is, if men and women as husbands and wives could just realize we are wired differently so that we complete one another, that we help one another, and we're to take our differences and our difficulties to the Lord and see what God might do. It's to present those differences to the Lord. God allows those differences so we will learn from one another and seek the Lord together to work those things out. So he addresses divorce, and he does this following what he talked about regarding adultery. So you can see how that kind of springboarded into talking about divorce, which leads to the next one, talking about oaths. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, this is something we find all throughout the Old Testament. Why? Because humans, by nature, are dishonest. We are dishonest by nature because of the fall. We're fallen. You might call it a white lie. You might come with all kinds of fancy ways to uh, dance around what it really is. But because of our tendency to be dishonest, we have seen the necessity to authenticate a promise with some kind of oath or some contract. When you go buy a car, you can't just walk into the car dealership and say, well, I want that car. And I promise I'll pay you and shake their hand and walk out with the keys. It doesn't work that way. They are banking on this whole core dishonesty that we all have that necessitates something to reinforce that promise that we make. And in those days, contracts were drawn up and oaths were made. 
Now, what's interesting is God never told people in the Old Testament to make an oath. He just said, if you do make an oath, make sure that you make good on your oath. If you make a promise, you better keep it. And if you make a promise to God, you really better keep it. Well, he continues, Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 34, I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, why does Jesus say this? During the time of Christ, they would make an oath and they would say, I swear by my head that I'm going to do this. I swear by Jerusalem that I I will pay you what I owe you. And that sounds kind of strange to us, but it's really no different than, than what maybe we did when we were kids. And maybe I'm dating myself here, but at that time, kids, cross my heart and hope to die. So it's still going on, okay? Um, or, you know, you make a promise and you've got your fingers crossed behind your back, that kind of thing, as if that counted. Uh, I remember even hearing kids say, I swear to God. They would say that, I swear to God that it's true. But the thing is, if you swear by something like, like you say, I swear I'm telling the truth, if you say that, what you're telling me is everything you said before that I'm, is suspect. Like, I, I'm guessing that wasn't the truth. Now that you're telling me that this really is the truth, And at the time of Christ, people were making all kinds of promises, and their thought was, as long as I don't bring God into it, I can make a promise and I can break it. And they were entering into the promise with that very intent. In other words, if I swear by Jerusalem, uh, I'm cool. You know, if I swear by my head, now that's okay, I can break that promise. But Jesus' point is that you can't keep God out of any promise or transaction. He is in everything. If you swear by heaven, well, that's where he lives. That's his throne. If you swear by the earth, he props his feet up on that. He kicks back on that as its footstool, his footstool. He made it. He owns it. If you swear by Jerusalem, well, that's the city of the great king. If you swear by your head or by your hair or by yourself, God created that. God created you. You are God's creation. So you can't keep God out of any promise. So Jesus says, don't do any of that at all. Now, is Jesus saying that we can't swear an oath at all? Like, what happens if you get jury duty and you're called to go to jury duty and you get selected and you've got to to go before the court and you've got to raise your right hand and and place the other one on the Bible and swear by the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. Am I not allowed to say that? Well, no, that's not what it's saying. In fact, God himself, he swore oaths in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke under oath in a court. Paul made oaths. Jesus is confronting the making of an oath without the intent of keeping it. He's talking about the importance of verbal integrity, doing what we say we will do. When you say yes, mean it. When you say no, mean it. If you make a promise, stick to it. Do it as he says here in verse 37. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And listen, almost 32 years ago, I made an oath to to take Heather Lee Birdsell to become Mrs. David Reynolds. 
And I intended to fulfill that vow, to keep that, to, to keep that oath that I had made. And that was a good vow. God wants us to make that vow as a vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I never entered into that wanting to break it, intending to break it. And throughout our 32 years, we have certainly experienced the better, we've experienced the worse. We've experienced rich times, blessings from the Lord. We've experienced poor times, financial challenges. We've experienced that. We've had the in sickness and the in health. And the only thing remaining is that till death do us part, and God will take care of that in his time. He will give us the grace for that as well. But that's a good oath. When you make an oath, fulfill it. And you don't have to add all of this other stuff. I swear to God, you don't have to say those things. You don't have to say all of that. But if you make a vow or an oath, mean it and do it. Keep your word. Have verbal integrity. So Jesus, he talks about divorce, and then he talks about oaths, kind of also an extension, kind of oaths coming out of this idea between marriage and divorce, which came out of this one about adultery. But then he talks about retaliation, which I see is going back to the way he talked about uh, murder and anger, because that's where retaliation comes from. It's from anger. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, but this is the law that has caused many people to say, see, there it is. Here's an example of this harsh judgmental, vengeful God of the Old Testament. There it is, right there. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But they totally misunderstand the meaning of this law. The reason God gave the law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was to limit vengeance. It was to put a limit on it. Back in Genesis chapter 4, there was a man by the name of Lamech, and Lamech made a statement one day that... And he said it after he had killed someone. He said in Genesis 4, verse 23, For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. It's like, I'm taking this to the nth degree. I'm, I'm going to come back even stronger. So whatever infraction that was against Lamech, it obviously was short of death because he lived to declare that he had taken vengeance so his response to being injured was to kill the other person. This law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was put in force to limit vengeance. And this is key. It was done for public crimes. But what had occurred by the time of Jesus is that they were taking something that was done for governing bodies and enforcing it on a personal level. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is for public retribution overseen by a judge and typically a jury. And once it had been determined that this person had committed the crime, then the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would be enforced. On a personal level, it's different. On a personal level, there is no eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this is, this is key to understanding the differences when you look at what Jesus is teaching throughout these chapters. Because people read things that Jesus said, and he's intending it for our per interpersonal relationships and applying it to a broader scale, which is not what he's talking about. Look at verse 39. He says, I tell you, 
not to resist an evil person. And again, this causes a lot of confusion. Am I supposed to just lay there like a doormat and let people run right over me in every situation? Is Jesus saying we should just let evil have its way? If you see a crime, just don't report it. Just let evil have its way. uh, People who are pacifists will point to this verse and say, we're not to resist people who do evil. We're not to do anything. There's a very famous book uh, called War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. And part of the premise of his book was this verse. And in his book, Tolstoy was calling for the elimination of police and the military because he said that they are resisting evil in society. He, He was a Russian novelist, and he wanted to dispel any kind of show of force because of this verse. He also wanted to get rid of the court system that would bring any retribution upon those who did evil in a society because of this verse. If we did that, that's like giving every dictator, uh, every tyrant, every thug, whatever, giving them a permission slip to do whatever they want to do. The reason we have a military, the reason we have police, the reason we have courts and the enforcement of law is to protect those who are innocent from such tyrants. It is put in place because we recognize that we live in a fallen world. We're not, we don't live in a redeemed world, not yet. That's why Jesus is coming again the second time. So on a personal level, I forgive. On a corporate level, on a societal level, in the nation, we believe in the rule of law. It's what keeps us going. It's what protects us as a society. That's why Paul uh, writes what he does in Romans chapter 14 about obeying our government leaders. By the way, if you think about Jesus in the temple courts, you remember when he saw the false worship taking place and, and the buying and selling of animals because of the sacrifices and they're making money off of that. The same Jesus who said the words we just read, he took a whip and he drove everyone out of the temple. All those who were buying and selling. And he did both. He makes this statement here and he does that action there without any inconsistency of character. And Paul, the apostle, when he talks about enacting church discipline to a a sinning member of the church, the body of Christ. He says there could come a time and place where you have to deal with that and even deal with it publicly if there's no repentance. So there is a place for the enforcing of law and even biblical law as uh, by Jesus, as we see, and according to Paul, by the church. But on a personal level, in our interpersonal relationships, if you hurt me, I am to forgive you. On a personal level, do not resist an evil person. On a personal level, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, I'll take care of it, so let me take care of it. And as much as I might think I know the best way to to take care of a situation like that and take it into my own hands, God does a much better job than I do. So if I'm trusting God to take care of it, then I don't mind turning people over to God and and releasing that, forgiving them, and allowing God to work in their lives. But on a personal level, not only are we not to resist an evil person, he goes so far as to say, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, (laughs) being slapped in the face, it is degrading. It is humiliating. 
again, so I study, I'm going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I could not have planned this. But, of course, if you know anything what's going on in the world this last week, there was the slap heard around the world, right, from Will Smith and Chris Rock. For anybody who watches the Oscars, I haven't watched that in a long, long time, and nobody else watched it, but everybody heard about it. When Jesus speaks of a slap on your right cheek, it was culturally understood to be a, a deep insult, but not physical, a physical attack. And that's probably what we saw there. It was meant to be an insult, to, to be degrading. Jesus does not mean that if, if someone closes their fist and punches you in the side of the face, that you don't do anything. He isn't saying if, if someone takes a baseball bat and swings at you, that, that you don't try to protect yourself and, and take care of yourself. He's not saying that a physical attack cannot be resisted or defended against. He's saying that we should be willing to be insulted and humiliated if it opens up an opportunity to show God's love, to show the character of Christ, to show the character of God, you don't have to retaliate. That's, that's worth thinking about. I don't have to retaliate. That's what he's saying. And he continues that idea, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The tunic was the basic garment that people wore in that society, and the cloak was the outer garment. It's something that kept you warm at night. But he's saying, if they want that, give that to them too. And you see the principle. Be willing to go beyond what is requested if it opens the opportunity for you to express God's love. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. At that time, Judea was under Roman military occupation, and under military law, any Roman soldier could command a Jewish person to carry his pack one mile, but one mile only. Jesus says, go beyond the one mile that's required by the law and give another mile out of love. Take that extra mile, because here's what happens. This is how we take any attempt to manipulate us and transform it into an act of love. We can transform something meant for, for harm, for, for evil, and turn it into an act of love that shows Christ in those situations. Verse 42, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was to limit retribution on a societal level. But on a personal level, Jesus says, respond in love. He says, go beyond what is requested if it opens up the opportunity for you to express my love. That is my heart. That's what Jesus is telling them. This is my heart. And he goes even further than that. He's not done. Because now he talks about enemies. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Now, that idea is all throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, it's found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. But Jesus adds something. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That last part, to hate your enemy, that's not in the law. That's not in the Mosaic law. That's something that the scribes and Pharisees and the rabbis added. 
something that they taught, but it's not found in God's word. Now, there were times that, that God gave his people victory over their enemies, and, and, but nowhere did God command them to hate them. They, they were to hate the sin, to hate the things that they were doing, but they were to love the people. But the law had become so perverted by the time of Christ, especially by the Pharisees, they, they said, you are to love your neighbors being Jewish people. And you're to hate Samaritans and Gentiles. And that is a command. That was what they taught. So they felt righteous in their hatred of non-Jewish people 2,000 years ago in Judea. That's why they didn't go through Samaria. When you read through the Gospels that they avoided Samaria. That's why they disdained Samaritans. That's why they would pull their robes closed when they would walk through the city. So, so as not to brush up against a Gentile. So Jesus sets the record straight. He says, you heard that, but that's not true. And here's what is true. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, you read that, and you're thinking, wow, that's hard. That's a tall order. Jesus says to go far above and beyond from love them, to bless them, to do good to them, and pray for them. Now, to pray, it's interesting he puts that last, but when you think about it, and I found this, that I can't pray for someone, not for very long, and hate them at the same time. You really can't. If you think you can, try it. Try praying for someone. If you are sincere in your prayer, you can't do it. Think about this as we're, as we're here. Is there someone in your life right now that just to hear that person's name or just to think about that person, it just stirs up some anger, some, something just rises up within you and you get kind of ready to explode? My challenge to you, as soon as you have that thought, as soon as something like that happens, ask that God would bless them. Ask that God would change them and speak to them. Pray for them. Lord, bless their family. If they're married, Lord, bless their marriage. If they have children, Lord, bless their kids. Bless them in their workplace. Pray for them. And genuinely, genuinely begin to pray God would bless them. And then Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. So look for opportunities to do good. If it's somebody in your workplace, look for opportunities to help them with their work assignment or bring them coffee or something, something to show good to them. Look for those opportunities. Pray for those opportunities. So you're praying for them. You're blessing them. You're doing good for them. And what happens is that God changes your heart. That's what happens. God changes your heart towards them. And all of a sudden, you don't see them as an enemy anymore. He continues, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. He's saying, big deal. Everybody does that. You always wonder, did Jesus ever say big deal to anybody? Well, he essentially does here. 
Big deal. Uh, everyone can love people who love them and say nice things about them and pat them on the back and encourage them all the time. Everybody does that. Verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Again, he's just putting the tax collectors as his example uh, there. But of course, the answer is yes. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, we said it from the beginning, Jesus is calling us to live differently. We are to live counter to the culture of this world. And Jesus, he's been shaking things up here in chapter 5 with the pivotal verse of, in verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. His point is that no one is righteous enough. We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, and he drives that point home in verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you're like, okay, you got to be kidding me. Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect? Well, don't miss what he says first. Therefore, therefore, based on what he just said and about the need to demonstrate these things he just described the going the extra mile, loving your enemies, blessing them, and praying for them. Based on all that, you shall be perfect. But understand, the word perfect, it's the Greek word teleos. It's often translated, and some Bible teachers will say that it's translated to be, to, to be mature, to bring to maturity, to be completed. But in the context of this chapter and in this passage, the meaning is that of perfection. That's what he's been talking about. If you want to be righteous by the law, you must keep the whole law, and you must keep it not just externally, but internally in your heart. Can you do that? No. Because our, our Heavenly Father is the standard. We're to measure ourselves not by other people, not by the scribes and Pharisees, but by the Father. The sons and daughters are to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. And that perfection, it's absolute perfection, and it includes our external actions and our internal attitudes of the heart. That includes our words. It includes our responses to injuries. It includes how we deal with our enemies. And you reach that mark, you reach that perfection when you love your enemies. Not just your friends or your family or the people who smile at you and say, you're so awesome, you're, you're so wonderful. He says to love your enemies. Thankfully, he did that. Jesus did that, Romans 5.10. It says he loved us while we were still enemies against him. So we see that example from, from the Father. We see it from Jesus. And the great purpose of salvation the goal of the gospel, the great desire of the Father is that we would be conformed into the image of his Son, the only one who ever lived the perfect life. And so Jesus is showing us that we need a righteousness apart from the law. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So again, his point is, no one's righteous enough. We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. No one's righteous enough, but Jesus is. 
Jesus is, and you can accept the, righteous, the righteousness of God by faith in him, in Jesus Christ, the one who came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.